Chapter 14 Where Would You Go If? It was not at all something George had considered when he started on his quest to make his ranch survivable for the coming apocalypse. But starting after his fateful conversation with Izzy, Jake, and Peter a few years before his preparations were complete, he began to give it more and more thought. How would he get the children to the ranch? While his trips into town were rare and born almost completely out of necessity, as the ranch grew nearer and nearer to completion, he spent more and more time talking to people he met in town. He was aware of the sideways glances and snickers as he drove around town in his military spec Hummer. He was okay with that. He excused people because they didn't know what he knew. And he already knew that even the people in the government whose job it was to protect the citizenry thought he was crazy. Certainly, the average Joe on the street would think that he was completely out of his mind. Just another crackpot with a doomsday theory. Even in the supposedly hallowed halls of academia, where he still spent an enormous amount of time, those that knew of him and his theory thought that he was too out there to be taken seriously. But in order to provide a safe haven for the children, he knew that he would need to reach out to people to at least let them know, even if in a roundabout way, that should something horrible happen, there was a safe place for the children. So during his forays into town, he would strike up casual conversations and find a way to work in a hypothetical question. Where would you go if? was how he would begin changing the details of the scenario from the realistic massive earthquake to the more ridiculous, the entire power grid goes out in a terrorist attack. When he was actually to get people to engage, most of the answers were a similar version of staying at home to protect family. It was just as he thought it would be. Using that as a jumping-off point, he would steer the discussion into topics from food and clean water to protection from marauders and other criminals. He was careful to point out the fact that without power, food would be scarce and sources of clean water would be few and far between. More importantly, the less desirable elements of society would be able to operate virtually unchecked. Those who took the bait were worried enough to become truly scared when he asked the same question that had thrown him for a loop. What about the children? Bingo. While most considered the whole conversation bizarre, none were able to escape without being deeply disturbed, especially those who had children. As he increased the frequency of his trips into town, he found that people were more willing to engage, some even approaching him with solutions of their own, and others who were curious as to why he was so interested. It was during these subsequent conversations that he began to offer the idea of them using his ranch as a possible refuge for the children. The next step was explaining that his ranch could support a number of children, but the adults would have to fend for themselves. He couldn't take care of everybody. The tricky part was revealing enough about the safety, security, and survivability at the ranch without alarming people with details about the defenses, the weapons, and ammo, and bunkers, and other features. He wasn't giving tours or selling memberships, so the details weren't all that important. All he needed to do was plant the idea 
that the children could be safe there, should the worst happen. While Twin Pines was a relatively small community of about 10,000, it wasn't a particularly close-knit community. But still, people talked with one another, and increasingly, people found themselves, embarrassingly, talking about worst-case scenarios. And George was almost always mentioned. And even while dismissing the crazy idea that something terrible was going to happen, in the back of their minds, they all wondered what George had built out at his ranch. It was all that George could have hoped for. And just when George thought it couldn't get any better, as had been the case with numerous other ideas and concepts for the ranch, it did get better. Much better. It wasn't until George went to visit Dr. Robert Bobby Dockery, Twin Pines' local general practitioner, that he realized that he hadn't made any preparations for medical care. As he sat in the rustic waiting room, he realized that this wasn't completely true. He had built a special refrigeration unit and some protected storage closets for basic medical supplies, but these would not really fulfill the potential needs of the ranch if the conflicts he envisioned ever came to fruition. He needed a doctor, and an operating theater, and space for lots of medicine. But first and foremost, he would need a doctor. For his part, Bobby had heard the rumors of the crazy doomsday prepper who was running around town asking weird questions about people might do in, in case of a massive disaster. As he finished with his next-to-last patient of the day, he found himself smiling at the prospect of meeting George Porter, the crazy man himself. While not nearly as obsessive as George obviously was, Bobby's experience as a combat trauma surgeon had taught him how important it was to be prepared for everything and anything. It was one of the things that Beth, his wife of 20 years, found most annoying about him. She tolerated the constant questions and occasional ridiculous purchase with a good attitude and a decent amount of humor. After all, if that was as bad as things ever got between them, they were much better off than most married couples. Their son Tyler, however, was another matter altogether. Even now, at a very mature 14 years of age, Tyler had better hands than most of the surgeons that Bobby knew. As Bobby washed his hands, his smile grew as he remembered giving Tyler his first doctor's bag as a gift on his fifth birthday. Tyler had immediately begun using the toy stethoscope to listen to everything, from their dog's heartbeat to the television, radios, and just about anything else that emanated noise or vibrations. Bobby and Beth were constantly amused, thinking that Tyler was cute as he went through his doctor phase but it turns out it wasn't a phase at all. When he entered first grade, he wore a fanny pack around his waist that contained antibacterial spray and a wide assortment of bandages and band-aids. He was so quick to react and tend to the myriad of scraped knees and elbows around the playground that he earned the nickname Doc after only a few weeks. A few weeks after that, he told his parents that he was officially changing his name to Doc and he commanded that they no longer refer to him as Tyler at all. Again, Bobby and Beth assumed that he would outgrow this as well, but he never did. In fact, by the time he turned 10, Doc was ready to begin performing surgeries. Well, not real surgeries, 
but he pestered Bobby long enough that Bobby had no choice but to give him surgery drills. Thinking that starting with the most difficult drill would kill his enthusiasm, Bobby showed Doc how to surgically remove the pit from a grape. This was one of the most difficult and hated drills for surgical interns. On paper, the drill seemed harmless enough. Slice the grape skin open, surgically slice through the flesh, and use a pair of very fine forceps to remove the pit, and then sew the skin closed with fine silk sutures. The drill was actually very simple in theory, but extremely difficult in reality. The skin of a grape is very thin and fragile. To successfully complete the task, the sutures need to be extremely precise, and the pressure has to be tight enough to hold, but soft enough not to tear. It's a task that many surgical interns need years to truly master. It took Doc eight months. When Doc had first revealed that he had mastered the task, Bobby was understandably skeptical. In fact, it took a great deal of willpower to keep him from laughing, or at the very least, grinning at his son. Bobby simply didn't think it was possible that Doc could have mastered the task. He didn't want to discourage him or dampen his enthusiasm, but on the other hand, maybe by showing Doc how difficult surgery was, it might be the final straw that would end what he thought was an overly long phase in Doc's development. He smiled at the thought that Doc might even revert to using the name he and his wife had agonized over months before he was born. It would be nice to have Tyler back, he thought. Less than a week after Doc had proclaimed victory over the task of excising the pit from a grape, Bobby and Beth gathered in Doc's makeshift operating theater, which was really just an old workbench from the garage, carefully cleaned and draped with some spare surgical pads that Bobby always had around the house. Doc had even cobbled together a clamp of sorts that would hold the grape without crushing it. Bobby noticed this and thought it was pretty clever. Mom? Dad? Thank you for joining me for this demonstration, Doc began in the most formal language his prepubescent voice would allow. This afternoon, I will accomplish the task of excising the pit from a Vitis californica, which you probably know as the California wild grape. Bobby chuckled immediately, and Beth chimed in a half-second later. Apparently, Doc had anticipated the laughter because he paused at just the right time to allow his audience time to assess whether laughter was appropriate, and then paused again, just long enough to signal that the laughter should be short-lived. He was working the room like an expert. Before I begin, are there any questions? He asked his parents politely. Beth shook her head. Bobby raised his eyebrows ever so slightly, but enough for Doc to notice. Dad, is that a question? Nope. It's okay to ask. You won't mess me up or anything. Bobby did indeed have a question, but he was afraid of intimidating Doc or confusing him. But now, with Doc's insistence, he let it fly. Will you be using a lateral or anterior incision for entry? Which would you prefer? Excuse me, Bobby almost spat. He couldn't believe his ears. What do you mean, which would I prefer? I can do it either way, Doc offered with absolute innocence. 
and confidence. Really? Bobby scoffed. He was about to say something really sarcastic when Beth elbowed him in the ribs hard enough to make a loud thump. He had been trying to be a bit of a smartass when he asked his initial question, and his first instinct was that Doc was paying him back in kind with a smartass retort. But as he looked at his son's serious expression and unruffled manner, he realized that he actually could do the drill either way. This fact made Bobby shut up entirely. He had never seen a grape pit extracted through an anterior incision. Well, since you seem to be a bit skeptical, I think I'll use the anterior entry. It's supposed to be much more difficult, but it's the first way I learned to do it, so it's no biggie. And before Bobby could say anything more, Doc had turned around, walked behind the makeshift operating table, and removed the sterile draping from the instruments. It's one thing to have a surgical drill like this described to you. It's another thing to watch someone perform it, as Bobby had done numerous times before in his career. But as he watched his 10-year-old son operate on that grape, he realized that he was watching something that he had never seen before and would probably never see again. The skills and precision that Doc was demonstrating were truly masterful. The first thing Bobby noticed was the way Doc cut the skin with such gentleness that he didn't even score the flesh beneath. Next, Doc had actually discovered a way to stretch the skin away from the flesh, creating a very clean operating field from which to gently and carefully cut through the flesh all the way down to the core. But it was the third piece of innovation displayed that literally got Bobby up out of his seat so that he could get a better view. At issue was an instrument that Doc had obviously cobbled together from several surgical instruments to make a pair of hybrid forceps. These very thin, very fragile-looking forceps were actually designed to grab the pit from both sides and then rotate it 90 degrees in both directions along the longitudinal axis, basically twisting the pit free without rotating the entire instrument, which would certainly cause damage to the flesh leading to and away from the pit. It was absolutely ingenious. When the pit was free and Doc had placed it on the small metal specimen tray next to the operating table, Bobby couldn't take his eyes off it. This was starting to annoy Doc, who was anxious to demonstrate his suturing prowess. Uh, would you like me to stop so you can examine the pit, he asked, the irritation just edging out of his otherwise straightforward tone and demeanor. Bobby again caught himself being scolded by his ten-year-old son, and he promptly sat down with a quick, sorry. As you may have noticed at the beginning of this surgery, Doc began in his most grown-up voice, Instead of just cutting through the skin and the flesh beneath, I just cut the skin and then separated the skin from the flesh and held the incision open with a reverse clamp. Doc looked up to make sure that he was being understood. <laughs> Funny that he wanted to make sure a combat surgeon and an experienced nurse were following his logic. I found that this method greatly reduces the damage to the flesh and allows for a much cleaner closing. As he began to expertly suture the skin of the grape closed, he continued talking. Obviously, I never operated on live tissue, 
But I imagine that this method would reduce the swelling and shorten the recovery time of a real patient. Right, Dad? He asked, looking up briefly, hands still working. Uh, I think you're probably right about that, Doc. Both Bobby and Beth could see Doc smiling beneath his mask. It was at that moment that Bobby realized that his son was going to be a hell of a surgeon one day. And now, four years later, he was meeting a man who was planning for the end of the world. He would certainly need a surgeon or two. So what if he was a little bit crazy, Bobby thought. It never hurts to be prepared. A minute later, he was face to face with the crazy man himself, George Porter. So what can I help you with today, George? Bobby asked, shaking hands with George. Just an annual checkup, Dr. Dockery. Call me Bobby, Bobby said. Dr. Dockery always sounded kind of silly to me, he laughed. Have a seat. Bobby gestured to the examination table, and George hopped up. Word around town as you're preparing for the end of the world. This caught George off guard. He looked intensely into Bobby's eyes, trying to figure out if he was being mocked. He wasn't sure. Well, George began, I wouldn't use those exact words. Bobby stepped back and crossed his arms, measuring George. No? What words would you use? I've been calling it the big change. The end of the world seems kind of, kind of, well, crazy. Bobby smiled. I can see how people might think that. My wife thinks I'm kind of crazy for stockpiling canned goods and extra medical supplies. George raised his eyebrows. Really? Yep. She puts up with it, but I can see it in her eyes. She thinks I'm a little crazy. The two men looked in each other's eyes for a moment and then both looked away. Only a little crazy, George asked innocently. Bob smiled again. He was enjoying this. So far as I can tell, she hasn't called the men in white coats yet, so that's something. George laughed. <laughs> Indeed. For the record, I don't know... I don't know you, and I haven't heard your theories, but I don't think you're crazy. I appreciate that, George began. Of course, you haven't seen what I've been doing out at my ranch. Just the rumors. Ah, yes, the rumors. But I like to get my information from a more reliable source. The horse's mouth, so to speak, George asked. He was beginning to like the doctor. Exactly. Care to give me the synopsis? George looked at the doctor carefully. If you promise not to call the men in white coats. Bobby raised his arm and looked down at his white lab coat. Present company excluded? George laughed. <laughs> yes, of course. No white coats. Tell me. George took a dramatic breath and said, Sometime in the next year or so, there will be a supermassive solar flare that will take out all modern electronics worldwide. That includes just about everything electrical, including vehicles, cars, trucks, trains, planes, computers, communications, and power grids. Everything. 
It's going to plunge us into a physical state similar to that of the late 1800s or early 1900s. Bobby's face dropped. He'd been enjoying the witty banter with George, but as he looked into George's eyes as he was describing his theory, he saw none of the hallmarks of deception. More importantly, he didn't see any signs that George was deluded or otherwise mentally unstable. What he saw was a man who was truly and sincerely believing in what he was saying. I don't call it the end of the world because the solar flare itself is not the problem. Bobby was unsteady. It's not? No. It's what happens in the days, weeks, and months afterwards that's going to be the problem. George let this statement hang in the air for a while like he had during his dissertation. He eyed the doctor, watching the wheels spinning behind his eyes, and he contemplated what George had said. Tell me more, Bobby asked, the first tinges of fear creeping out in his voice. Do you want to start the exam as I go through what I think will happen? Bobby nodded, and George started unbuttoning his shirt. It's going to begin with a breakdown of the central government, George started. And then it gets worse. Much worse. George went through his theories and predictions as Bobby examined him, occasionally throwing in a question or request for clarification. After 20 minutes, Bobby excused himself for a minute and then returned. Am I keeping you from anything? he asked George. Not really. Good. I canceled my last appointment. I want to hear more. You can get dressed. George picked up his shirt and began pulling it on over his shoulders. Uh, Where was I? The ranch. Yes, the ranch. Simple story, actually. I wanted to build a place where my kids could be safe and survive. I guess it kind of got out of hand because the more I built, the more I realized how desirable it would be as a target. So I began to think I needed to fortify it, protect it. That's logical if your theories are even half right. Funny you picked up on that, George offered. My son, Jake, was the first to really say it out loud. To say what? Well, he said that if I was wrong, then I was probably batshit crazy. His words. George smiled briefly and then looked Bobby right in the eyes. Then he said something that made me shiver. What did he say? We were in my car. I'll never forget this. We were in my car, and he looked right at me and said, But Dad, what if you're right? Smart kid, because that's the thought that's spinning through my mind right now. I'm not a scientist by any stretch of the imagination, so I can't speak to any of your theories. Bobby paused and looked around the examination room. But scientists are not. I'm scared shitless when I think about the possibility that you might be right. Me too. Bobby had drastically understated his state of mind. In reality, he was absolutely terrified. George had just given credence to his justifications for being a bit of a compulsive about being prepped for anything. Have you factored in the fact that you'll probably need a doctor at your ranch if you're right? The thought had recently occurred to me, George said, matter-of-factly. We'll probably need some sort of medical facility. 
George smiled. I might be able to help you with that, Bobby smiled back. I was hoping you'd say that. Let's grab a drink. I was hoping you'd say that, Bobby said, now smiling broadly. I know just the place. <laughs>